Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 125 of Control the Controllables. And I am so excited to be bringing you this episode. You can hear people in the crowd and you can hear things going on. Yeah, I I remember hearing my dad at match point up. I actually hit, managed to hit a dead neck cord winner, which was brilliant. <laughs> and I remember I slipped. He hit a smash. I got it back, but I slipped over. And I could just, in the point, I could hear my dad just shouting, get up! And this is our Wimbledon special. It was actually to tell the story about how this came about. One of our former guests, Kyle Spencer, reached out to me a few months ago and said, how cool would it be to get loads of ex and current British tennis players together to unpack the unseen part of being a British tennis player during the grass court season. And I had to agree with him. We we tried to then bring a panel together. Unfortunately, Kyle Spencer was unable to make it during the time that we did it. But a big shout out to Kyle for the idea. And here I am able to present to you our 10 amazing former and current British tennis players. We've got Kyle Edmund, a career high of 14 in the world. And back in 2018, he played Novak Djokovic in that epic match on centre court. We've got Harriet Dart, who back in 2018 jumped onto our screens at prime time as herself and Jay Clark made the semi-finals of the mixed doubles at Wimbledon. And then in her last outing, which is two years ago now, she made the third round of the women's singles. And I know she's excited to take her place back on the courts at SW19 next Monday or Tuesday. And then we go back three decades to Julie Salmon, who in 1984-1988 made the third round. And one of those times she played Steffi Graf, the great Steffi Graf, on the centre court at Wimbledon. And she shares that with us today. And how do you trump Steffi Graf? Well, how about nine-time Wimbledon champion Martina Navratilova, who Claire Taylor back in 1994 played the first time she got a wild card into the event she got drawn against Martina on the centre court at Wimbledon and then Lucy Arl in her first appearance in 1997 she has a great story how it took four or five days for her match to finish and she ended up winning her first round back in 2000 we then got Chris Wilkinson. Anybody that was watching Wimbledon back in the 90s will know that as middle Saturday. You know, Chris Wilkinson four times in the 90s made the third round and had some fantastic matches that will bring a lot of memories back to all of us. And then, of course, who can forget his last ever pro tournament in 1999. Danny Sapsford rolled the dice in the pre-qualifying event and listen to the podcast to find out what happened to Danny during that amazing run. 
And then Lee Childs, a good friend of mine, a former guest on Control the Controllables, back in 2003, played Nikolai Davidenko and took him out in the first round before playing against the Matador, Rafael Nadal, age 16, 17 at the time. And then Luke Milligan, a, a GB Davis Cup player, made the third round in 96 before playing Tiger Tim Henman in the third round. And then last but not least, Katie O'Brien, a former top 100 player in the world who won her first round back in 2007. We bring them all together. It's a roundtable discussion of sharing stories to look at the opportunities that British players have, but often the unseen challenges of being in a Grand Slam nation, the expectancy, the wild cards, you know, the many different things that go with being a British tennis player. But I know you'll take a lot from this. Whatever you are doing, stop what you're doing. You all deserve to have a couple of hours entertainment. And I know that this is going to give you that. So I'm going to pass you over to our amazing panellists. So our British Wimbledon special, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. I would say how you're doing, but as there's so many of you, I don't want the listeners to get confused. And how very apt that on the on the day that we're doing this podcast, it's chucking it down with rain over in the UK. We've had Wimbledon qualifying cancelled for the day. We've had Eastbourne cancelled for the day. But that means that we've been able to get a couple of extra guests. And over to you, Lucy Arl, to start with. We weren't going to have you if it wasn't for the rain. And tell us, this time of year, it seems to be the rain plays a pretty big role. It certainly does. Yeah, they uh, cancelled pretty early down in Eastbourne. So I was, I was commentating. So uh, I didn't do much other than watch a, a screen of, with a camera that, that had a lot of rain on it. Um, yeah, I'd say... The rain, my first Wimbledon actually was quite a good story. Uh, it took me a while to get a wild card. In uh, 1997, I got my first wild card. So I was scheduled to be a range match. So I didn't know what court I was going to go on. Sometimes they did that with the Brits. So you knew that maybe you were going to get a biggish court. Um, I was actually playing an American player that wasn't particularly well known so I was a little tight in terms of what court I was going to go on so it was Ginger Helgerson Nielsen I don't know if anyone remembers her so that was that was my first match I got I was in the the locker room and I got a phone call from Alan Mills who was the referee at the time and he said right you're next on center which was For me, not good. <laughs> I was so tight and I was going, are you sure you want to put me on centre? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think. It was one of the Woodies was playing um, Michael Chang and he was two sets to love up. I can't remember if it was Todd or Mark. So he was like, you're next on there. So I was like, oh God, so I'm following this match. Anyway, it ends up going to five. So I then end up getting put on court at a must have been about... 10 past eight at night and from centre I was now on I think court five I can't even remember so we went out and I started was pretty tight to be honest lost the first set 6-2 and then I was 4-2 down second set and it was getting pretty dark 
So they actually stopped our match. So this was Tuesday. So I came off, um, showered, did it, everything. So if you if you're last on, you you then don't get put on first match. So Wednesday I was scheduled second. Wednesday zero play, rained all day. So Thursday I'm now back on first. Thursday rained all day, zero play. Friday back on first rained all day zero play bearing in mind I've got quite a big family and quite a lot of friends so I'm then having to try and get tickets every day because my family were actually staying with my brother who lived in Ipswich so they were commuting back and forth I'm having to get tickets so I get scheduled again Saturday end up going on Saturday and I actually get on get back to four all lose six four so I wasn't on long on Saturday then I get drugs tested. <laughs> so as soon as I come off the court, the person that's doing the drugs test um, is there waiting with you. Then they don't leave your side. They're pretty much in the shower with you waiting. Now, because I hadn't been on the court that long, it took me hours to be able to do my test. <laughs> so finally managed to do it. So that <laughs> was... That was my first Wimbledon. <laughs> it probably wasn't the best experience or what I perhaps expected. It took me days to complete it and I still lost first round. <laughs> so I know all about the rain. Good for the per diems though, Lucy. Well, exactly. exactly. Uh, yeah, back, back in the day when the um, when the prize money wasn't so so huge as it was today, I think per diems were quite a large percentage of your prize money. So uh, when you were called off late at night through rain or... Or, or bad weather or darkness, or whatever it was, it was quite quite a nice feeling to know that you'd uh, managed to rack up another few days per diems. I think. I think. I think myself and Wilkie, we're probably the oldest in the group here. I think we played when. Uh, it, were you there when it was People's Sunday, Wilkie? When it rained, I think I remember finishing my first round on the Friday, um, and they they decided to play on the Sunday for the first time ever, um, and that was quite a nice experience. Were you there that year, Wilkie? I was. I remember the that week. Um my store of that week it was so it was 97 wasn't it I think that was the the week we had really bad weather so I was playing Bjorkman um and uh it was over I think it might have been over four days um but in between because we lived um in, in Wimbledon at the time I, I spent the week painting I used to go home and just just paint the wall do some decorating and then come back you know hoping to play got cancelled went home did a bit more painting the actual tv and the beep followed me into my house and actually filmed me painting. So I've got this video at home, um, which obviously show the kids and they have a good giggle over. So over four days of, you know, trying to beat Bjorkman, I ended up decorating the house, which was probably one of the best things I ever did at Wimbledon. <laughs> and, for, and for those listening, I, ha I have to jump in. Per DM doesn't mean much probably to your listening. So this is the, this is the money that you receive to go towards your accommodation, your travel, whereas a lot of the British players are often staying at home, staying at friends. So I know back when I was playing, it was probably 200, 250 a day, you know, and you get it for three, four, five days after you lose as well. So, you know, that money gets quite significant. But I have to pick up on one point. I can see Julie Salmon here shaking her head as Danny Sapsford says that, him and Chris Wilkinson are the oldest on here because going back to 1984, 1988, third round at Wimbledon, Julie, 
have you had any rain stories, any any challenging stories, or maybe even a rain story that helped you as well? Well, funny, funny that Danny and Chris were saying that that they finished 1997. I think I was long finished by then, so I'm I'm definitely definitely the oldest. Um, yeah, just similar to all of those stories. And when Danny was speaking, I was thinking of the Padam and. I remember starting against Karina Carson on a on a Monday, but being so relaxed. I checked the weather. I thought I checked the weather forecast, and I was like, "It's raining! It's raining! I'm not playing!" And I was just super, the most chilled I've ever been, I think, before Wimbledon, and just quite yeah, just really relaxed in in the changing room. And then suddenly we get called out to to. The weather changed. I was thinking, oh no, there's no, you know, really, is this about to happen? And I was even quite chilled in the in the warm up, thinking that clouds coming across. And fortunately, I don't think I honestly don't think I, I was that prepared. I really was adamant it was raining. We weren't going to play. Similar story to Lucy. Started on the Monday. I think I ended up on the Friday, staying up at the road in a house that then following on from that, Lucy and Katie stayed at. I've got a story about that one as well. But uh, yeah, staying at that house thinking, great, I've got free accommodation and I've got at least sort of five days extra per diem. Uh, but anyway, I eventually, I eventually won that match and, and beat Karina Carlson. I think it was on the Friday or the Saturday. And moving into the, the opportunities that the grass court season brings. And, and I think there's, there's going to be lots of interesting things for us to get into today because I do believe there's opportunities and there's challenges. But if we take, if we take the opportunities first and almost the, the holy grail of a, t- of a British tennis player, but also the detriment to British tennis is this wild card, these wild card words, you know, and without the wild cards, I think most of us in this group wouldn't have ever played at Wimbledon. I know some of you did, um, but even if I bring you in, Kyle, your first Wimbledon experience, I believe as a 17 year old, was a wild card into Wimbledon qualifying, played Jimeno Trava, age 17. You ranked 13, 1400 in the world. He's ranked 102 in the world and you managed to get a win. And how much, I guess, did that do for your belief system that you could, that you belonged at at that sort of level? Yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of like one of those, one of my first big wins. Uh, And I remember it was playing at Roehampton, uh, probably on that long row, somewhere in the middle. And it was last match on, nice evening from, from what I remember. And you had all the the colleagues and everyone from the LTA just come and watch. Uh, and it was it turned out, you know, one of those really good experiences that I always remember. He'd probably done me a favour because the week before he had won a challenger on clay. I think like he played the final maybe a day or two before and then literally just rocked up maybe with like one hit under his belt. I found, I remember finding it nice to play just because he wasn't playing such a grass court game. He was, uh, you know, returning surfing like three metres behind the base on a grass court, but obviously a very good player. So that that was my, yeah, it was my first win in, in sort of a Wimbledon pro event, even in qualifying. And then I played Felder the day after, um, sixth of up, and then I think ended up getting done in three sets. So that, that was my first experience at Wimbledon. And a year after, I got a wild card when I was 18 uh, into the main draw and played on court three against Jerzy Janovic. Uh, that was the year he made semis, actually. And uh, I, got, I got beat easily. He was just too powerful, 
um, just too much sort of presence for me. But I remember, I, the thing that I remember that match is how hard he hit the ball. I tried my best and I just couldn't deal with it. But I think I took another wild card after that, possibly. No, two more. I think when I was 21 was the first time I got a main draw mine merit. So having the wild cards available is like, I think, hugely valuable if you can use them right. When you start relying on them and, and you find yourself keep taking them year in, year out, I think that's what you don't want to do. But I just remember that taking those wildcards had so much experience because you're so used to playing futures, challenges at a certain level when you get that when you get that pressure of stepping on court at Wimbledon with the home crowd. Um, there's not much that sort of replicates that. So, yeah, it's, it's hugely rewarding. But I think if you use it in the right way, uh, also financially is also very rewarding as well so I without that help I think it I'm not going to say I wouldn't be the same player but it, it certainly helped me in so many ways um, and I wonder as well so, Ken, yeah. and, and this for for you Harriet obviously you're still playing and you know you're you're playing again this year this year at Wimbledon it's also not just the match experience but I would imagine just the experience of being around the locker rooms, the experience of, of being able to train in, in the right environment with the right types of players. You know, have you found that, Harriet, over the last, I know you made the third round back in 2019. You haven't had a chance to, to go back to that stage yet until, until this year. But did you find your first couple of experiences you managed to get some, some good practices with some of the better players and start to feel like you belonged at that level? Definitely. I think I, the first year that I played in 2018, I literally put my name down anywhere where there was someone looking. So I would practice with anyone and I would just be everywhere. Whether I practiced four hours a day, it didn't really matter. I just wanted to kind of be out there and get that kind of experience. Yeah, my friends in for main draw was in 2018 with Carolina Pskova on court 12 and... I ended up playing a really good match and she was top 10 in the world and I lost in three sets. Um, but during the match, I fell over and I really hurt my hip. And um, I started thinking, oh my God, I imagine if I have to retire in my first Wimbledon match, this is like the worst thing ever. And I went off court for a, a medical timeout, which I hate taking a medical timeout. I think they they shouldn't be allowed, um, but hey-ho. Um, I had to take one and it ended up being like 20 minutes because by the time you get off the court you have the medical timeout and then by the time you walk back it's the longest process ever but yeah I mean for me the first year that I played was an amazing experience and then I had this crazy run in mixed doubles um, making the semi-finals and we got to play on huge stages which I think has definitely helped me in singles as I got to play mixed doubles on centre and on court one um, to then the following year being able to play on centre. I think it definitely, I wouldn't say prepared me because I don't think anything prepares you for walking onto centre court on Super Saturday when we're done when you've got all the sporting greats and your dad kind of reminding you that everyone's there as well. So I think Wimbledon an added pressure for Brits, but also I think you can use it in the right way and kind of feed off the crowd. And I think, I just love everything that Wimbledon represents and um, can't wait to be back Just uh, interesting on that, Harriet, is how much help did you get going on to Centre Court? How much 
you said nobody can prepare you for that but did you get any help did you get any support yeah I mean in terms of support with my team and stuff like that for sure but again none of them have walked on centre court or, or played there so it's very different um I think you you know you always go and have a little bit of a look of a court before you play on it especially a big court so you just kind of get a bit more familiar with the surroundings I think having played mixed doubles on it albeit you're with someone else so the experience is, is a little bit different yeah, yeah. I mean uh, my, my, nothing I, really prepares you for it yeah and I only asked because uh, I felt the same the first time I went on centre court I think it was in I think it was 89 I got to third round in 88 and then I got drawn against Graf first round centre court obviously she was defending champion uh, so not only was I thinking about the points about to come off <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah but but yeah nothing really can I think no, I, I, my, my thing now and one of the things I think is good about the RTA is doing their mentorship scheme is actually having people that have been through that experience that you can draw on that and I I, I, I certainly reflecting back on that I would have really benefited, benefited from some support having played doubles or something on there before helps I'm sure but I remember in those days, I don't know if it's the same now, there was a little, I think Claire played out there, little waiting room, um, and it's like the size of a couple of toilets. And I was in there with Martina, Steffi, they, they were eyeballing each other, and another girl called Peanut Louis Harper. But that, that bit in itself was nerve-wracking. And then to go and have to curtsy to royalty, et cetera, et cetera. And then before you know it, and Steffi used to play pretty quick, I was... I, well, I, re I remember the warm-up thinking, this is great. This is what I've wanted all my life. The noise was exceptional. And then all of a sudden, I, it just went quiet. And it's like Miss Salmon was craft to serve. And I, it was obviously so quiet. And I thought, I, I started the warm-up thinking I was at somebody else's party. This is great. And then all of a sudden, I thought, ah, this is, everyone's watching me. And then before I knew it, I was three love down and then I looked up at the clock, silly thing. Guess what? I said six minutes. Um, <laughs> Steffi did play quick at the time, I promise you. Uh, and, then, and then she's off and I'm thinking, wait, she's not even had a drink. Sit down with it. And then I tried to take my time, but she was serving, got up. Um, I think I was serving at that stage. Actually, no, I was serving. And then I went love 40 down on my serve, looked at the clock again, and I swear it stopped. It said, still said six minutes. So I'm panicking a little bit, but cut a long story short, I then won seven in a row. And, uh, and then I think I ended up being on court longer than anybody else other than the final. So it wasn't so bad after all. But that, that initial shock of seeing, I remember seeing all the commentators in, in the boxes thinking, oh, my word, look, there's John Newcomb, there's Billie Jean King. This is a look at, you know, like I was on my sofa looking at them in the boxes. And then thinking, oh no, they're watching. You know, they're watching me. Um, so yeah, that that was a bit of a crazy experience, and that's the reason why I did ask. I think I I possibly could have done with more support. My coach hadn't played on centre court. I possibly could have asked more. I remember I had a sports psychologist. He wanted to make to make me feel comfortable, so he he gave me a tape of. Brighton Beach and the waves to make me to make me feel super chilled. Well, that didn't that didn't help me at all. But um, yeah, just and I and actually when she was young, I'd beaten Steffi, so that wasn't you know. I mean, okay, she was probably about three at the time, but I had played her, I had beaten her, but that whole experience was 
it was fine. It was fine in the end. But I would have, I could have done with some support there, I think, and help. Before I bring Luke Milligan in, we've had Pliskova and Harriet. You've just been trumped with Steffi Graf over Pliskova, and I think there's then someone who can trump Graf, and that's nine-time Wimbledon champion Martina Navratilova and Claire Taylor. Your first ever experience at Wimbledon. You get drawn first round. I remember it because I believe that you were training at Bisham at the time with all of us young guns and it, the excitement when that draw comes out and you're playing an absolute legend of the game. It's going to be on centre court. How did you handle that experience? Um, to be honest, they told me quite far in advance that it was going to be on centre. I think it was a given that it was going to be on centre court. So by the time we actually got round to playing on the day, it was pretty late in the day. And Julie spoke about the little room at the side, which was, you know, a shoebox. And I was in there and Martina didn't come in. So I was just sat in there on my own because obviously I was in locker room three, which was a lot further away than the main locker room at that time. Um, and I was sort of called over. And so I dutifully went straight away. I didn't sort of pause or anything like that. The guys were still playing and it was Agassi was playing before us. And uh, I sat in the in the shoebox, sort of, you know, sort of knees knocking, waiting to go on. Um, sort of going back to what Judy said, I wasn't even allowed to go and sit in the stands prior to playing. I wasn't given the opportunity to even go out to the court. It was not, I wasn't even allowed to go through the royal box to sort of be in the stands or anything like that. So for me, literally, my first time going on to centre court, apart from having watched, as, you know, from the crowd, was was walking under the sign into the into the waiting room um, and then Agassi popping his head round the door to sort of see who was sat in there and saying good luck which freaked me out a little bit and then walking out um, but it, yeah it wasn't particularly helpful that it was my first Wimbledon so I was pretty nervous but it was also her last so we walked out and I was like well they love me but um, no I think they were probably giving her the four minute ovation as it was her <laughs> last singles at uh, Wimbledon so that was a little um, a little daunting. Um, Anne Jones was one of the commentators. She, she, um, I think she said, uh, Claire looks a little bit nervous because I was game was stood at the net after done it, doing everything I could think of four times because they were still clapping, waiting for her to take her applause and wave around. I was stood with the uh, umpire at the net waiting for her to come. And yeah, so to be absolutely honest with you, when we started the warm up and we started to play, it was a little bit of a relief that we're actually doing something that I knew what to do. And yeah, it went quite quiet. And I only really noticed the first sort of few rows. I mean, obviously I saw my box, um, which had a familiar person in it for Chris and I, um, my coach was Jonathan Smith at the time. So he was set up in the box. I mean, I hadn't seen him for most of the day. He was mostly drinking whiskey, he said. So um, I hadn't seen him for most of the day leading up to it. Um, I was sort of on my own waiting. Um, and yeah, I think I would have really benefited, even if it had been, I'd have been allowed to go and sit on the court the night before. Because, you know, like I said, they told me quite a long time in advance that that was who I was going to play. You know, my parents, it was my life's dream. My parents, my dad couldn't even see me. He was so nervous. He came and gave me a kiss, which really weirded me out because that wasn't normal um, and said good luck and then ran off. And then, um, yeah, I was sort of went off and did my practice and then, yeah, just hanging around in the in the players area, waiting to be called on, watching the screen to see what the match before was doing. Um, but it was an amazing experience. I can't, you know, I can't deny it, but yeah, a little daunting. And 
I wish I'd have had a little bit more preparation for it, if I'm honest. Yeah, I was going to um, echo a little bit what Julie was saying, actually. I think I, I played on, on centre um, against Henman in 96. And, and there were a couple third of... Round. There were a couple that was third round, wasn't it? Yeah, third round, yeah. yeah. And there were a couple of... I mean, there, there's a lovely little link, actually, back to the, the rain delay story, because I think, I think genuinely I probably myself and Tim probably jointly hold the record for the, the shortest amount of time spent on centre court ever to, to, to complete a match. But I remember walking out and I actually remember, you know, the, the little room and there was a little light in the corner where if, if, if the light was on, that meant you had to bow. I don't know whether I've made that up in my head or whether everyone else remembers that that was a thing. But um, when I went out and while I was knocking up, I actually felt quite comfortable because it was you know it was a little bit noisy and there was a, there was a lot going on but I think the the moment that I was completely unprepared for was when the umpire said play and everything went completely silent and I actually had to uh, then kind of get on with it and, and and not be enjoying the experience it was almost like now you know you've enjoyed that initial part of the experience and now you've just got to get on with it and um, I mean my the first four or five games of that match were pretty horrendous for me I was I was just unbelievably tight but in in the warm-up and walking on I felt actually fine um and and going back to the the rain delays thing we we actually were called off for rain at two sets to love to Tim five four to Tim serving with new balls so we, so we, this was on the Friday so we then came back on Saturday um walked out did the whole thing Warm up was actually longer than the match. I think he held to, I think I had him 15.30 actually. But yeah, had him 15.30, he held to 30, shook hands off. So I think that was probably one of the, the shortest amounts of time anyone's ever spent on centre. But yeah, amazing experience. And actually going back to the, the initial question about wild cards, I think the wild cards being available, as Carl said, almost as a, as a bit of a stepping stone in terms of being able to have access to those experiences was, was amazing. And, and, and again, on the flip side, I think we certainly kind of my generation, we did get a little bit involved in kind of the, the, the wild card culture, if you like, in terms of who's going to get the wild cards, what's, you know, what's everybody else's British rankings and who's going to be kind of on that, on that list. And I, th I think also probably an another thing when I, when I reflect on it is that, I mean, we would often spend three and a half months playing on grass every year. Um, and I'm not 100% sure in terms of our, our development as tennis players that that was particularly good for us either. I mean, I think about, you know, there'd be two British satellites on grass, which were each four-week events, and then you'd have the Wimbledon or everything through Wimbledon. And then after Wimbledon, there would be the challenges, satellites, things like that. So, I mean, I, I reckon there were months where I played about three and a half months on the grass nonstop. Yeah. So I don't know what everyone else thinks about that, but I certainly think that from, from that point of view, I think it's important that the grass court season is a real focal point for British tennis because it is. Um, and it's important that, that that's maximised and the positive effects of that are maximised. But certainly in our generation, I feel like we probably spent a little bit too much time playing on and, and also playing on probably poorer quality grass courts than are being played on now. And that was probably where there was also opportunities for, for upsets as well, though. You know, because I would imagine a lot of the a lot of the foreign guys didn't spend as as much time, you know, on, on the grass courts. You know, so that I certainly think that that was whether it still is probably it is to a degree. Obviously, Jack Draper 
fought, had a couple of big upsets, you know, last week. Um, but Kyle, you were about to jump in there. Don't let me stop. Yeah. You. No, I was, I was actually going to say something um, that's interesting. Whenever I find people talk about the, the centre court, is like the word like quiet comes up quite a lot, which is something that I found big time when I played on centre. When you are playing on it is how quiet it is. It almost feels like too quiet sometimes. And that is almost how unique centre court is when you're playing, how... I don't know how big it was. It like twelve or thirteen thousand people can be so quiet. Yet when the point is over, uh, it can be really loud. And I, I find playing at Wimbledon, the the crowd is quite on you in terms of they're not that far away from you. But when when it's quiet, it can be very eerie. And I was just thinking of my warm up when I played on there the first time. Everyone's there's a lots of murmuring. Everyone's chatting. And then, like you said, as, as the umpire says, play, it just goes completely still. And I found, like, when you are losing as a British person, it is very quiet and that just compounds itself because it's just no noise and everyone is there to sort of cheer for you. But the flip side is when you are uh, winning and stuff, you feel like you have control of the crowd, like you, they're almost dancing to your tune, like how well you're playing, how the match is going. but. It, it is one of those things in, in Wimbledon that I don't find at any of the other slams that there's always noise, Australia, France, uh, especially New York. But in Wimbledon, it can just be just so quiet, which is very unique for like a, a tennis tournament. That's what I found. I think it can be worse at Eastbourne, Kyle. I think oh, especially, really? especially, as a lo- especially as a local player, I used to get a lot of tuts. I don't know what's worse. Oh, it's the, uh, or, oh, it's missed it again. The groan. The groan. Yeah, a lot of old ladies tutting at my play. I've, I've had a few groans <laughs> in these four. I think, I think the one thing we're, we're all kind of, we've all got a common kind of denominator is we've all played at Wimbledon against players that are well above our leagues. Um, we're all reliant upon wild cards to get into the tournament, which in itself means that we're not worthy to play at that level week in, week out. Um, so I think it's perfectly understandable that we're that we're losing to these guys. Um, but the the issue that I sometimes had was that the potentially the British public, sometimes the British press, they didn't quite appreciate that you're playing as a person ranked 200 in the world, and you're playing against guys that are top 10 in the world, and and they're expecting you to win those matches, which is a little bit kind of uh, unsettling and a little bit unrealistic. So. Uh, I think that's where the pressure comes from sometimes. I'm not saying the public were, were. I wouldn't want to say the public were ignorant or anything like that, but they didn't quite understand that just the kind of monumental task that, that we were facing walking on court playing five times champions and stuff. And uh, I agree with everyone. The, the crowd, it's a double-edged sword. They can be fantastic when you're winning and playing well, but... When they are quiet, you can hear them tutting, and it is, uh, it is. Uh, you just want the ground to swallow you up. Really, it's it's not not an easy situation. Yeah, I do. I do think um, with with the crowd thing, it is weird at Wimbledon. I, I kind of, particularly on the outside courts, it, it's funny because there's there's obviously a lot going on, but you you can actually hear a lot of what people say at the side of the court, particularly when you're going to get your towel and stuff like that. Um, and I, I very 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 vividly remember. I was playing second round on the old court 18 that had the, the, the big stand one side. And 
I was two sets to love up. Actually, had match points in the third set, and then I'd split sets to go two sets all. And I went to get my towel, and I vividly remember this 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 guy turning around to I think it must have been his girlfriend saying, um, "Oh, come on, let's go. The British players never win. Come on, let's go. We'll go and watch something else." And it, and it actually kind of, I, I guess in in that moment that can take you one of two ways, right? So I, it was it was it was a, it was a weird one, but it actually kind of made me a little bit more determined. And you know, on the on the flip side of that, on that particular day, the, the crowd was I mean, it was unbelievable actually. And and so, some of the best feelings, as as Carl said, when those moments when which in my case, obviously very few and far between, but when when you're on the court and you are playing well and you feel like you're in control of a match and, and, and the crowd is really with you. You know, th- those are, those are probably some of the best, some of the best memories from, from, from playing at Wimbledon. Um, but it can, it can uh, be balancing on a pretty delicate knife edge actually. And as Danny said, you know, no, no I, n- I never played a match that I was o- on paper anywhere near supposed to be winning at Wimbledon. So um, it's, it's an interesting, it's interesting when you think about it in that way. And to bring someone else into the conversation, <clears throat> Lee Childs, nice, nice to join us, Lee. And it's, as what Millers has said there, you you certainly caused an upset at Wimbledon, beating Nikolai Davidenko, and also had an yeah. opportunity at against a, a very young Rafael Nadal back in the day as well. Yeah, no, it was. I'm just what Millers was saying is is quite. It just was bringing a bit, little bit of it back. Actually, for me, was the when you can hear people in the crowd and you can hear things going on. Yeah, I remember hearing my, I can remember hearing my dad at match point up. I had a really interesting match point in my one. Um, I actually hit, managed to hit a dead net called winner, which was brilliant. <laughs> and I remember I slipped. He hit a smash. He'd hit a smash, and I and I I got it back, but I slipped over, and I could just in the point I could hear my dad just shouting, "Get up!" like you know like just get up right and anyway and I, I got it back but the thing it was so lucky I mean I was dead and buried and the thing hit the hit the net tape and rolled over it was just awesome it was awesome but I can clearly remember my dad shouting shouting like get up you idiot you know like just get up what are you doing and it's, it was quite interesting I remember that match I remember winning that match you know feeling great it was five sets you know um it was just brilliant. And I remember looking up at the commentary box and Sapper, Sapper was in the box and he's like, he's giving it this one up and I'm looking up at him. And I, cause at the time, I mean, I, I had a great run with Danny. I love, love working with him and he was brilliant. And then, you know, stuff comes in where, uh, you know, I think we needed another podcast for that one. But anyway, um, I ended up, <laughs> I was working with, I was working with, a complete and utter imbecile called Tito Vasquez. And you can actually, you can actually put that on this, Kino. I'm, I'm, I have to be you to say that, a complete tool. Um, and he, he was there. And anyway, I remember looking up at Saffer after. I turned around, I could see him in the box. Because on court 13, you had the big stand on one side. And then the, the commentary bit was, was, was quite high up, Danny. I don't know if you can remember that. But I remember it being up. I remember looking up. Yeah, and he I was remember. just so pumped. Yeah. And it was just a great feeling to sort of, you know, you had someone there that you knew really well. You had my mum and dad were there and everyone, you know, like the whole thing. Uh, but like Millers was saying, you can clearly hear people. Like if you hit a double fault or something, you know, or, or something, you know, just a, just a pretty, you know, average mistake or whatever. And you can hear people like, oh, 
you know, oh God, you know, like this. And you can really, it's just so off-putting. It's so hard to, because it's, you can hear a pin drop, even on the outside courts, you know, and, and actually at Wimbledon and the same at Queens and the same at the, quite a lot of the, the you know, the, the spectators can get quite close to the, to, to the court. So there is, it, it, yeah, it's, it's quite lively. And I do, I remember I, I, that what Millers was saying is, is interesting. I, do, I remember all that. It was very interesting. And in terms of the the wild cards, and I think that's, I think we all agree it 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 can be a massive positive, and and a massive opportunity. And you guys have given examples, but I even know, I mean, I I don't feel worthy compared to a lot of you guys with your singles results, you know. But even when I think about trying to get a wild card in doubles, I definitely set the ceiling too low, you know. My ceiling was be British number one and get a wild card into Wimbledon. And, and I did that. And then I said, okay, I'd love to win a match at Wimbledon. And then I did that. But, but if I think about over the years, there's no way that I quite saw the possibilities of path that I think now, you know, we've had so many players now over the years, over the last 10 or 15 years that have started to create those paths. And if I, if I bring you in now, Katie, you know, you, you managed to play Wimbledon without a wild card, I believe, as high as 84 in the world. How, how was that feeling when you actually got into Wimbledon on your own right? I actually didn't get into Wimbledon on my own right. Oh, so no way. I, was, I got direct acceptance into Australian Open and the French Open. Right, OK. By the time Wimbledon came around, I was ranked about, I was like two out or something. Can we just say yeah. that you did? Just you for can, the podcast. You can, it sounds better. <laughs> so we'll, so for, but for a, a main draw Grand Slam, so the first time you got in a main draw Grand Slam on your ranking, was that a different feeling? You know, we've talked about the belief system, whether we're worthy, you know, this whole imposter syndrome that I think we've all experienced. How, how, was, it, how was the feeling getting in on your own right to a Grand Slam? Oh, it was definitely a different feeling. I, I felt like I belonged and I was very much part of it when I got in on my own right. So I think I was, the first few years I got a wild card at Wimbledon, I was almost a little bit embarrassed and thinking, oh, do I deserve this or not? Actually, my first Wimbledon wild card was when I was 18. I was actually still at school at the time and it was completely unexpected. I'd just finished my A-levels, came down to Rains Park and I played the wild card playoff, which back in those days the winner actually got a main dual wild card and I, I lost in the final of this playoff so I wasn't expecting one but I think there was one left over and I ended up, I ended up getting a wild card and uh, I think I was ranked about 550 in the world at the time so I'd really not played anyone of the level playing at Wimbledon so it was it was literally I was like a fish out of water but for me actually it was it was a great experience um so I Still actually it was sitting A-levels at the time. So I had a maths exam on the Monday, played at Wimbledon on a Tuesday, had a, typically had a rain-delayed match. So it was a set down, 5-4 down, 15 love up, rained, had a French exam first thing on Wednesday morning, which I had to move, move forward a little bit so I could get to the grounds in time to actually play. Ended up getting rained off, finished the match on Thursday, unfortunately lost four points in a row to lose that 4-4. Four had another exam on Friday and then played juniors on Saturday. So it's the most bizarre experience of my life. But I have to say that gave me a taster of kind of what, what I was aspiring to, to be. So I remember that summer, I think I went off with Lucy and Mel South and we went and played some 10Ks in the US. But I had a real spring in my step from that first experience at Wimbledon and actually the, 
the first couple of years, I think that that experience accelerated my progress because I had a taste of what I needed to get to. And and good uh, good effort playing Wimbledon. You got A levels to prepare for, especially French A levels. <laughs> Thanks. I actually had um, film camera filming me on my way into my French exam on a Wednesday morning. I'm not sure what I was more nervous for, my French exam or the actual match. But it yeah. does. It's another example, though, Katie, of of how so many British players over the years get get thrown into the limelight. It's something that's that they're not used to. And I think if we take a a, a run of the mill tennis tournament, there's a certain there's a certain rhythm to it. You know, we turn up maybe an hour, hour and 15 before our match. You know, we practice for half an hour. Some people like to go and get a coffee, but it, it, it there's not you're not taking in all of the other added bits that goes with Wimbledon and, and goes with that grass court season that obviously the superstars and and someone like yourself, Kedders, that now are so used to that, that's now how your day works. But Harriet, how do you find that? You've gone from, you know, playing 60Ks, 25Ks, and then all of a sudden your full day is different, you know, from the timings that you have to get there, from how you have to plan your eating, from how you, how you have to plan the press conferences. You know, it, it, all of a sudden a, a match day is, is a 12, 14 hour day. How do you, how do you adapt to that? I think um, I like what Katie was saying about also feeling different when you earn direct acceptance um, into slams, I think. You know, I've been in three situations now where I've qualified and won matches and slams. And when you're there, you feel very different. You feel like you've uh, really earned your spot. You're, you belong to be there. Whereas getting a wild card, you, you haven't earned the right, although you've been given the opportunity to play, of course. It's just, it's very different. And for me, it's like using that experience to make sure that in years to come I don't have to use a wild card so that I can be there on my own right on my own merit and then going back to when you were saying about how your day is very different it is you know slams especially in New York you stay so far away from from the arena you know it takes 45 minutes on a good run with traffic so you have to make sure that you give yourself enough time then the long Locker room is also so far away from the from the practice court, so it's knowing how long it takes from the locker room to the practice courts. And I remember the first time that I went to um, US Open was the first one like that I got into um, with my own ranking for qualies. And I remember almost going to time myself how long it takes from the locker room to the practice courts to to the gym to everything, so that so that I knew everything that nothing would kind of stress me out on match day um, because I feel like Think things can stress you out when you're not, you know, you're not comfortable in a situation. And the more that you're at these events, the more comfortable you get playing challenger tournaments with no one there. You know, you've got a man and his dog or your mum with you or, or something like that to suddenly being thrown into playing in Rod Laver Arena with a full crowd. It's very different, but it's also very, can be very rewarding and very inspiring to kind of just keep, to keep plugging away, keep, you know, working every day and, realizing that you know when I was a little girl this is what I've dreamt of doing and trying to continue to to get there on my own right and in terms of opportunity I think there's uh, there's lots of stresses I want to get into in, in a moment but I can't have Danny Sapsford on the podcast 
and not talk about pre-qualifying at Wimbledon. And I believe, Danny, it was you were coming towards the end of your playing career. So, you know, quite often we think of opportunities as, you know, youngsters getting the opportunity. But uh, I think the beauty of your story, the Marcus Willis story, you know, coming almost towards the end of your careers, coming through those pre-qualies matches to then qualifying, to then go on and make, make third round and not just make third round, but then play a pistol Pete Sampras in the third round. What an unbelievable Roy of the Rovers run. Tell us, tell us how that came about and how that experience was. Um, oh God. Um, no, obviously good experience. Very, very enjoyable. Um, particularly coming at the end of your career as well. Um, in fact, the last match I ever played was Pete Sampras on court one. So that was it. That was the end of my career. And I'd, I'd had a job lined up with the LTA. Um, I think Jeremy Bates approached me in about February or March and asked me if I wanted to work with some juniors, um, which I was very keen to do. Um, but I said, look, let me just play through till Wimbledon. It's obviously nice going out the home grand slam. So uh, that's what I decided to do. It's nice uh, going out on court one at Wimbledon. It probably wouldn't be great going out at Chiswick first <laughs> round. <laughs> well, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I think that year, I think I was... I was uh, I was obviously just, I was playing lots of different events, just prize money events. And I remember playing, uh, I think some German league matches the weekend before qualifying started or even pre-qualifying started. So I was playing on the clay and I came back and won four matches through pre-qualifying, wasn't playing particularly well. Um, and then I think I beat Peter Corder in qualifying. He, he'd won the Australian Open the year before and then he had his big kind of drug scandal and he didn't play for six months and his ranking had dropped. So I managed to beat him in qualifying. Um, and going back to what the girls said, fantastic. Yeah, it does give you a sense of belonging when you actually qualify rather than rely on a wild card. So, so I was certainly walking tall, walking into Wimbledon for the first day um, in my own right, which was great. Um, and then playing Sampras on, on, on third round on court one was, was a lovely experience. Um, one thing I do remember, though, I, I went through a stage that year where, where I, I never warmed up for any of my matches. Um, so I literally just went on cold, um, which, was, which was interesting. I used to travel by myself quite a lot. I wasn't the most kind of outward extrovert person, so I wouldn't really mix too much. I wouldn't ask people if I wanted to practice in the morning. So I just got into a habit of not warming up for my matches. Um, and it seemed to be working pretty good, this Wimbledon. Um, and I had the biggest dilemma on the morning of my Sampras match of whether to warm up because I didn't want to go into court one just stone cold. Um, and I know all the BBC press were saying, oh, we'll see you over at Orangi Park when you're practising. Um, and they were gobsmacked when I was saying, well I, well, I haven't got practice court, I'm not practising. And they were like, what do you mean? Like, this is the biggest match of your career, what are you doing? Uh, that kind of unnerved me a little bit. Um, but no, it, it was nice. Like, walking did you practice? Did you practice? Everything. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Um, but I can relate to everything everyone's saying about the noise because all throughout the warm up, it's like almost like Mexican waves and everyone's having a good fun and they're all murmuring and talking and laughing and joking. So you almost feel like you're not the centre of attention. But but then once the umpire announces play, the, the crowd are, are, are deadly silent. The focus is purely on you and, and it really hits it home, just the kind of mountainous task that you're, that you're kind of uh, approaching. Um, so that was very unnerving. Do you no, think, no, Danny, ahead, because, because it was the end of your career, do you think it helped having almost low expectations? Again, you know, going in, not really warming up, you know, probably being able to be quite carefree. You've already got a job in place. Do you think that helped that run? 
No, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. I, I went through numerous times in my career where I thought, this is it. This is the last couple of weeks I'm going to be playing. And, and <laughs> invariably, those couple of weeks were the best couple of weeks I'd ever had. And, and it encouraged me to keep going a bit longer. So I'm sure there was an element of the pressure was lifted and I, and I played better. Um, and, and even throughout that, that fortnight, that run I had, I, I can relate to Chris Wilkinson's story where he said the, the press followed him and he became this decorator for a couple of weeks because uh, I remember the press came to my house and they were asking me what I liked doing. And I said, well, I, I, I quite like being in the garden. I, I like being in the sun. You know, it's, it's quite enjoyable. And, and they made me out to be this world class gardener. Um, and I remember there was a, a sun cartoon of, of Sampras trying to serve and me holding up the play because I'm planting geraniums in the service box. Um, it had no reflection on what I did. And it, it made me, it was bearable because it was the it was the last tournament of my career. It was actually quite enjoyable to be flung into the limelight one more time. And, and I was, as much as the phone just didn't stop ringing, it was nice because I thought, well, next week I'm going to be anonymous again and no one will bother me. So just put up with it, you know, enjoy it. But I can, I can really kind of sympathize with someone like Kyle and Harriet where it doesn't finish and it keeps going week after week after week. And it must be pretty, uh, pretty demanding and pretty demoralizing at times. But, um, but for me, it was, it was enjoyable. It was a nice way to finish. One of my one of my statements that I love is high standards, low expectations, and I think I think if if tennis players can can live by that, they won't go they won't go far wrong. So how Lucy, you've obviously coached as well during the grass court season for many years now. How do you manage to keep players' feet on the ground? Because you know all of a sudden that expectation does rise. You know they start to hear things on social media, they start to hear that the expectation on British players in the press, you know, whereas if they're out in Kazakhstan playing a tournament, that expectation doesn't follow them. So how, how are you helping the players during those times on that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is definitely different now with social media. I think probably most of us on here that didn't have that probably feel pretty lucky that they're not having to, to deal with it. Um, I mean, it's something... I mean, I've always viewed Wimbledon and the grass court season as a massive opportunity, whether it's just with your tennis or just the opportunity to actually to be known or to become known. And, you know, I, I've just looked at it as a positive and I know there's a lot of pressure and I know I got nervous and tight. And but I've always certainly with the players that I've worked with, I've, I've tried to. I mean, I know tickets are, can be a nightmare. So that's something that I've looked to try and take care of. I think going through the experiences that, that I had playing and everything that you go through, I think just being able to talk to the players about that, certainly I would always get them to sit on the court before the match that they played. Um, with the media, I know certainly with the LTA, when I played, there was very much, you know, quite anti-doing anything and almost made you scared to actually speak to the press. I mean, to the point where I actually thought, well, no one speaks to me for the rest of the year. I'm going to speak to everyone. Um, I was the sun girl once with Greg. So we had to wear the sun patch. I just found it great fun. I found it amazing. I, I, I loved it. And that's certainly what I've tried to encourage with with players because you, you've got a chance there. And I think putting yourself in the spotlight then gives you confidence um, and belief, I think, 
so you, you're getting a taste of it and a motivation because to be honest you know when you're ranked four five hundred or even two three hundred you're playing challenges you're playing futures and it is a totally different world so you know for me the grass court season's massive and, and I think you know you, you've got to go into it with with the mindset that you're going to like get everything out of it that you can and, and I call it the Andy Murray effect. I'd be really interested. First, Chris Wilkinson, I'd love to bring this to you. You were but back in the 90s, you know, you made fourth, third round four times in, in the 90s. And I certainly remember getting extremely excited for Chris Wilkinson middle Saturday, you know, and thinking, here's the third, this is the year, this is the year that he's going to get to the fourth round, you know, and the same with Jeremy. And, and, and it felt very much during that time because there wasn't, on the men's or the women's side, really somebody who was going realistically to win the title, which obviously has come since then. The third round almost felt like a final, whereas now Kyle Edmund in the third round, Harriet Dart in the third round, because we're a little bit now more used to seeing obviously Andy win it, Andy making final. I think Tim needs to probably be mentioned there as well, you know, with his semi-final appearances it maybe isn't quite as intense as it was back in the 90s. Did you feel that? Did you feel as if you were literally carrying the nation's hopes on your shoulders? Um, not really. It, I think sort of like what Lucy's saying, if you've got the attitude of you're going to enjoy the moment, um, then I think that sort of gets you through. I think there's a few of us around who are sort of making third round. So there's always, always someone there as well. Um, and I think we've touched on, you know, the pressure nowadays for Carl and Harriet with the social media. I mean, in our day, it wasn't, you know, the only way you could know about someone was by picking up the newspaper. Now it's, it's everywhere. So there wasn't as much, you know, in your face, such a big profile in those days. Yes, there was a bit more attention. Um, I mean, personally, I, you know, I thought it was good fun. Just, you know, try to get the mindset of just enjoy the occasion um, if you can't enjoy Wimbledon and being on centre and playing on the big courts, then, you know, then that's a bit of a problem. So it was, for me, quite quite an enjoyable experience. And Kyle, do you think that mm. almost you've almost followed Andy in, in, in lots of regards? I mean, Kyle Edmund at top 20 in the world 15, 20 years ago would have would have literally been... <laughs> the the person who everybody talked about all the time do you feel you've been able to go under the radar a little bit because of Andy uh, a little bit yeah I, I wouldn't say like I followed sort of in his footsteps just because of how well he's done and how how big his standards are in terms of like Wimbledon I haven't really done that well compared to him at all so it was only the first year I was British number one, where I really felt like an extra bit of a attention where Andy was not playing that year. I was number one. It, I definitely felt like there was a lot more spotlight on me and that reflected in also like the courts I played on. I think that year I went court one, centre, centre, which would was never happened to me before. So that was the first time. And um, going back to social media point, like for sure it's way more around us in this day I actually for the first few years I was on it and then for the last obviously not last year but the two years before that I, I deleted social media during those weeks just because I knew if I had it I'd just be tempted to go on it 
and it just forced me not to go on it and read everything especially when I was younger I was I'm a person that I guess wants to be liked so when stuff was written about me that uh, that isn't that nice negative people's opinions is not nice to read so I the best way for me to get around that was just to get rid of it I think now I'm a lot better at um, just accepting that not everyone's going to like me or like the way I play and it also goes back to sort of embracing that just after doing this sort of time of year a few times now there's certain things that you just accept going to happen you know you accept you're going to be expected to win um even like the matches that are tough to win it's like even if you lose they'll let you know you've lost um you know media as well is a big one there's just going to be stuff written about you that maybe you don't agree with and I just felt like the better I embraced that and just accepted that I actually dealt with it a lot better rather than trying to fight it so for sure maybe there's a case to just not be on social media at all but especially for those those like four or five weeks during the summer I got rid of it and uh, I just found it way more relaxing um, to be around it I had a story actually I don't know what everyone else probably probably thinks the same but for sure those weeks the press are like way more on top of you you always get the uh, you always get the, the same questions every year but I had one that was written 2018 I was playing third round on the Saturday on center against Novak and they did a they did a story again I delete social media but I still managed to see this story where it said Edmund requests centre court time so that he can watch the England football, and I was like, "How? I mean, where did they get this? Like, I'd never even requested it." But then I was thinking, "I'm playing on centre against the world number one in the third round. This is like probably one of the the pinnacle of my career right now, and I've requested to be playing at a certain slot because I want to watch England play football." And I was like, "In some way, you just got to laugh at it, but..." I feel like those are maybe the little things that you have to deal with those those weeks that you don't want to, but that's just part and parcel of this period and also being a bit of, and being British. But Ken, is that that's one of the many reasons why you're a different level tennis player to me? Because a little story I've got from the juniors is 1998. I was playing in the juniors and I managed to qualify and I was playing the number 12 seed first round. And if you go back to 1998, during Wimbledon, there was a pretty big football game going on between England and Argentina, where certain David Beckham got himself sent off. Uh, Michael Owen scored the goal that probably second to Maradona's goal in the World Cup back in 86. And I was 8-7 down in the third set on the back courts, right by the marquees. And... I heard what could only be described as an England goal. There was no way it wasn't England scoring, you know, and it happened to be the Michael Owen goal, you know, where he'd ran from the halfway line. So, so it was complete nuts. And I have to admit, sadly, that I was slightly distracted by that as I served at 8-7, um, lost my serve to 30. I had not on purpose, but with a little distraction, 
And all I had time for was grabbing my two Wimbledon towels, chucking them in my bag, as we've all done many a time, and then running into the marquees to see to see what's happened. So maybe my my laser focus wasn't quite as good as yours at, at that time. But the story, Ken, is that I want to just quickly ask you as well, listening to what Katie said earlier, how... Yeah. It's such a large part of the year, this grass court season. Back in the day, three and a half months is maybe a long time, but now six, eight weeks. And I always think it can send players one way or the other. You know, if you've had a successful grass court season, can you build on it? But I remember after you played Novak, I remember, I'm sure speaking to you or maybe speaking to Hilt at the time, the next day you went to Silverstone to the British Grand Prix. You know, there's just lots going on, lots of lots of pressures and, and almost demand on the time. And then you actually got quite ill the next few weeks after. Do you think there was any any link to, to that that period of time to then to then being tired or ill or run down from the rest of the year? I don't know what you think, Ked, is on that and what everyone else thinks during their career. Yeah, th- yeah, that story is true, which was in hindsight was not not the wise move. I basically played, um, knew that the Grand Prix was on the next day, managed to go. I basically ended up feeling bad and got tonsillitis, but I had I had a tonsillitis three times that year, and then long story, I got ended up getting them out at the end of the year. But I think I got ill. It was just yeah, it, it um it is an intense period. You're on the go a lot. I remember working with a, a foreign coach and he one year said, um, you'll play Wimbledon and we're going to play this clay court tournament afterwards while, while you can. It's a good opportunity. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it was just he hadn't maybe uh, done it before or I, I just found like there was no way I could go and play a tournament afterwards. Maybe I talked myself out of it, but every time that, Wimbledon ends after those four or five weeks I do feel pretty tired at the end of it and I just didn't want to go and play but I find other players that do go and play after Wimbledon I do think like well well done I just I just really struggle to do it after that that time and maybe it's just how I deal with those weeks um can be quite mentally stressful and stuff but um yeah, it's is a is a good it's a really good time. Yeah, it's one you look forward to, but when it's done as well, I, I always feel like it's it's an opportunity for a little bit of rest as well. Anybody else experienced kind of good times after Wimbledon or bad times again as a coach, a small a small story working with Evan Hoyt. You know, he he made the quarterfinals of the mixed doubles in 2019. And I guess his days were train in the morning on hard courts because he was preparing for the US US Challenger circuit and then train on, on the grass ready for his, his doubles, mixed doubles, which you would never take that experience away. But retrospectively, I, I believe we we got his schedule wrong. You know, on that Thursday night when they lost a tight quarterfinal, we went out for food and that was mainly spent looking at flights to fly to America the next morning or, or the Saturday after. And then when we look at it, he actually went and he, he wasn't ready to go and compete, put in a couple of poor performances in America. That whole feel good factor is now gone and, and, and probably struggled a little bit towards the end of the year. Is, is that something that you guys have experienced Harriet? Yeah, I definitely think, um, 
you know, having looked back, especially to 2019 when I made the third round, I then went to, um, and played world team tennis. Um, I'd signed up in like you sign up pretty early in the March time, and it's a pretty long period. I it was three weeks, and it was right after Wimbledon, and I was quite cooked uh, mentally and physically after it. But you make a commitment and you go for it. Um, but in hindsight, I wish I had kind of known how I would kind of feel um, physically, especially um, just very drained after all of it. But then again, I had an amazing experience in playing world team tennis, which I wouldn't take away. But there's a reason why I haven't played it again. And yeah, I think it's it's very um, taxing on the body and kind of these few weeks um being in the UK as well it's super nice to be kind of on home turf and be surrounded by lots of friends and family but yeah I mean I'm currently having an argument with my coach about the week after Wimbledon so I'll get back to you on that one whether I'll be playing or not <laughs> make sure he listens to the podcast Wilkes yeah just going on that I mean I guess it depends individually how you are I used to find I mean my schedule after Wimbledon Obviously, I wasn't involved in the, the latter stages in the second week, but I'd, I'd go off to, to, to the States, play Rhode Island um, on grass, come back, play Manchester, Bristol, Challengers, two weeks on grass, followed by County Week on grass. Um, <laughs> and, you know, for me, Wimbledon would, I'd always get great results when I went to the States on the grass afterwards and at the Challengers. Um, and it was just something that I really built because of the, you know, the matches that I played played at, at Wimbledon. And the weekend before Wimbledon, I'd always play a British tour event. I mean, they were called the Volkswagen events in those days. So for me personally, I, I just had to play matches, you know. Um, so, you know, the Volkswagen tour before would be at Stoussey and it'd be on grass. Um, you know, play like three or four matches against, you know, not the best players, but it was just getting that winning feeling. And, you know, just to carry it on after Wimbledon for me was, you know, personally was, was my best thing. No, I was just going to say the majority of us here, we're like, I don't know, being kind to us all, we're, we're journeyman pros and, and playing Wimbledon is such a highlight and it is very intense and it is very exciting. And to play in front of 10,000, 15,000 home fans, it was pretty special. Um, the thing I used to struggle with was the weeks after that from going from a real high, you then find yourself in the middle of nowhere playing on an outside court in a in a lower level challenger playing in front of a couple of people having to motivate yourself rather than having the crowd cheering and encouraging you and pushing you on that was a real test for me and I think particularly if you'd had a bad Wimbledon and you hadn't capitalized on the opportunities you had the thought of having to grind out another year on the lower level tours before you got that opportunity again, um, that was quite demanding. And I know I used to almost plan my schedule, not from January to December, it used to be from Wimbledon to Wimbledon. Um, and it all, always used to be, can I make it through till next Wimbledon? And can I, can I make it, can I keep my ranking enough to, to justify another wild card or to get into a, a qualifying event or whatever it may be on the grass? So, that was what I used to find hard, just the the huge letdown and then suddenly finding yourself playing just for yourself in front of nobody. That was a real true test of whether you wanted it or not. I think um, regardless of what your results are over the grass, I think you're always mentally drained at the end of it. 
and I can completely relate to what Harriet said. I think it was 2007 was the first year when I was really, I was quite close to getting inside the top 100 and I hadn't quite done enough over the grass to do it. So at that ranking, you kind of feel like you have to take every opportunity that comes your way. So I remember, I think I, was, I got accepted to the main draw of a WTA event in Palermo the week after Wimbledon. And I ended up going there on my own. It was like 40 degrees. I think I lost to a Spanish clay quarter in the first round after about three and a half hours. And I was mentally absolutely gone after that. But I just couldn't resist the, the temptation to, to, to get the points that I needed to get inside the top 100. And that was a mistake on my behalf because it actually took me another two years before I did get inside 100. But you just feel like you're chasing points all the time. And sometimes you're just not ready to perform at your best. This is this is my my point, and and I really don't want to this to come across negative. You know, I re, I really don't, <clears throat> because obviously Wimbledon is the greatest. It's the greatest event in the world for me. It's not even a tennis tournament. It's just it's an event. Wimbledon. It's it's more it's more than a tennis tournament. You know, the grass court season is is absolutely incredible. But just like Danny says, I think the majority of us and. I, I believe Kyle and Harriet, you guys have, have probably separated yourself from this, but I think the majority of British players would schedule Wimbledon to Wimbledon, you know, and, and build it up. And I remember it had been in a challenger in Sarajevo one year, and I went out for dinner with Arvin Palmer, uh, Peter Vessels, uh, a Dutch player, and also Christoph Fliegen, uh, a guy from Belgium. And this whole, I think Bogdanovich was there as well. So we're all we're all having this this meal and this chat, and you know, quite open. And the 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 conversation of Wimbledon came up. And at the time, Christoph Fliegen had never been top hundred in the world. And Peter Vessels was taking the piss out of Arv, Bogdanovich, and and out of Vliegen, saying, come on, guys, you know, you've got to get inside top 100, all of this. And as the conversation went, it then was aimed towards the British guy saying, well, you guys don't need to be. You don't need to be because, look, let's take Arv, as an amazing player as Arvin Palmer was, at the end of his tennis career, he had a house, he had a, he had a nice car, you know, he'd set himself up fair play for, for life moving forward, but he but he wasn't inside top 100 in the world. And Christoph Fliegen says, I have to be. I have to be inside top 100 in the world if I want to play Grand Slams and if I want to make money from this. And he said, so I will be. And he, and he was adamant that he would be. He went on to be 28 in the world and spend quite a bit of time inside the top 100. But that, that night, it really hit me how... If we're not careful and if we get have the wrong mindset on this and we do continue scheduling from Wimbledon to Wimbledon and I'll just play another Wimbledon, are we subconsciously stopping players from, from moving into the rankings that they're capable of? And, and obviously now, you know, we've got, we've got quite a few of the girls coming through, quite a few of the guys coming through, and I really do believe that that's changing. But if I bring you back in, Lee, if you could give yourself some advice back to being 16, 17, you know, you were 350 in the world at 17. If you could give yourself some advice now, knowing what you do to a 17 year old Lee child around the grass court season, what would it be? Um, I still, you know, I, I bang on about this all the time, but I do think you've got to be a lot more responsible for your own game. I mean, I think, 
I think at the time, you know, you're sort of going through, not going through the motions, but you're going through the sort of, you know, with the LTA and stuff, and you're sort of the scheduling and, 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 and playing the tournaments and all the sort of, you know, trying to play as well as you can and do all the right things. But I, I think if, if I, I personally would just be, I'd wish I, if I could have my time again, I would be a hell of a lot more responsible for what I did and how I did it and, and uh, the way I went about it. And the, with, with regards to, like I said, scheduling, the, the way you were trying to play, believing in yourself. I mean, I've just done this player services role this year at Queens and, and it's the first time I've been back involved in, um, you know, that sort of level, been around that sort of level of play. And it's just, you know, all, everyone in that room, all those top players, they just all, they all do their own thing. They all believe in the way that they're doing. They, they believe that the way they're playing is the right way. Um, and I swear to God, half of them in that room, if they potentially gone through the system that we had back in the day, you would have had, you know, people trying to change, change everything and do it this way, do it that way. But I think, I, look, for me, I, I just think I would have been... A, a lot better off if I'd just been a lot more responsible for the way I played tennis and what, how I wanted to do it, um, rather than sort of just looking for the answer from coaches or or people around. And I think, in that, you know, and then you know you've got your, it's down to you at the end of the day. You can't rely on everyone else to sort of not do everything for you, but just to sort of you know guide you through. It's tough, you know. You've got to believe what you're doing. Um, and 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 be and just be responsible for it, really. Lee, Lee, can I jump in there because I was coach yeah. at the time, um, and I I remember I, I, I was interested to see what you said then because I remember one at one point you you were a, a fantastic junior. You'd broken into the senior game very. Early. Everything was going really really well for you. You were you were almost being billed as the next superstar, the next Tim Henman. Um, and I remember one Wimbledon. Um, and it may well have been you beat Davidenko and then played Nadal, or it might have been the year before that. I can't remember. Um, but you were, you were, you had a management agency company looking after you. Mm. And I remember you took a call one time. It was a few weeks before Wimbledon, and they said they were going to give you a Land Rover for the for the Wimbledon fortnight or something. Yep. Um, and I and I thought to myself, oh my god, is this such a good thing? <laughs> it was um, a good ride. It was a good it was ride good for me. It a, no, it's a great ride. But but literally, I don't think it, you'd even barely passed your driving test like no. two weeks or something. And I'm thinking to no. myself, is this the right kind of thing for someone who's 17 and he's got such aspirations? And and mm. and on paper, he very much hasn't made it yet. He's got a lot of potential. Mm. But the way the British press, the way the British public, the way the LTA pushed you up onto a pedestal, maybe that was almost like, like you see with the premier footballers today when they're earning fortunes, when they're sitting on the bench for the second team or something. And, and you think to yourself, well, where's the motivation now to push on and to really crack on and, and, and make some inroads into professional world? Um, and I just thought to myself, maybe you were receiving a little bit too much too soon and too much too young. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I mean, I remember that, Danny, and I remember uh, you just sort of get, like, it's very easy to get caught up in it, you know? You get caught up in sort of, you know, everything that comes with it. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, if, if that right at that point, when me and you, were, were we were doing well together, we had a great relationship, we were doing the right stuff. And, and I remember actually 
the conversation, I don't know if you remember this one, Stafford, when we played, I think it was the, it was the year before, and me and Jimmy Nelson were in the semis of the boy, the junior doubles, and we were in the semis of the junior doubles, and we had, and we had Jez Green training us, and we were doing all the right stuff, doing all the right stuff, and we lost in the semis. We lost to, was it Vliegen? It might have been Vliegen, and, yeah. and uh, was it Dominic Cohen? The other, the other Belgian guy who was... They played, player. they played Andrew Banks and Ben Riby in the final that year. They did. They did, the little sods, yeah. Um, and I remember playing that I remember playing that match and we ended up losing the match. And I, I mean, look, I felt like we got stitched up by the umpire, but that, I obviously would, wouldn't I? Um, anyway, I remember, I, remember, I remember coming off the court and I was so gone with losing that match. And I remember sitting in the... In the um, the locker room, the upstairs locker room, talking to you after that. Like, well, it was me, Jimmy Nelson, the few, I think Hiltz was there, Beach was there, definitely. And you were there. And I was like, I was like, what more can we do? We're doing everything right. And, every, and I just felt like we're doing, I couldn't do any more. I was doing, you know, we were training our nuts off. We were playing everything. We were doing well. And it just couldn't quite get over the line, really, on some of this stuff. Um, but again, it comes back to, I think, you just got to keep doing it. You've got to keep going. And I think, uh, and we did. And then the next year, yeah, you're right. We had, you know, I was still playing well. I'd won nationals, I think, maybe later that year. I'd won a few futures, done all right in challenges. And I was doing quite well. Um, and there might have been a little bit too much too soon with given this, given that, you know. Uh, but one thing I wish I'd done at that point, though, Danny, and I, I'm, not, I'm sure, you, well, I'll see what you say. But we, I wish we as a pair had had more control over what we wanted to do. It just, I just remember the, the feeling I had was that you were, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but correct me if I'm wrong. You were, you were frustrated. I was a little bit frustrated about scheduling and the trip, you know, what we were going to do, how we were going to do it. And, it. and again, it comes back to that, you know, it was the, 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 the dangling, the carrot about who's going to pay for this and pay for that and all the rest of it. And again, like I said earlier, that's another podcast altogether. But um, Danny, I'd be quite. You, you've got three you podcasts say. to do, Lee. I've got three. <laughs> mate, I'm happy. I can talk all day, like I'm like I'm now. I can keep going all day. It doesn't bother me. Um, but no, but but Saffa, just just. I think, I think you... Danny and Lee are counselling themselves here. Aren't I, they? Know, I know. Yeah, I, I need it. I need it. I've got to. I'm nearly look. Danny's going to. I'm nearly forty. I'm nearly forty. I can't believe it. Anyway. Um, but You've Danny, still got the Range Rover there, haven't you? I love, I love <laughs> cars. You can listen, cry in your listen, Range Rover, Lee. That's right. Listen, listen. I love cars. It's my weakness. Listen to anyway. But Danny, talk to talk. You talk to me a little bit about that time because I felt that was a little bit how it was. You know, there was quite a bit of frustration about scheduling and having control. And um, anyway, you you. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, 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 in all honesty, I can't remember a huge amount about it. I really can't. I know. I remember there being certain frustrations and I remember wanting to do certain things with you, but being almost kind of led in, in a different route. Um, I know at the time I was a very young, young coach. I don't think I had any qualifications. I, the, I finished, I played Sampras in the third round in 99 on the Friday and I was coaching you on the Saturday in the junior. <laughs> that's, how, that's how young a coach I was. I literally went straight into the, my role with you guys. Yeah. Um, so I think there was probably a little bit of reservation from the LJ's part in in giving me that role and and then letting me do giving me free reign to let me do what I wanted I don't know um but yeah I don't know um, yeah it's difficult I know what you mean but, it, but I just 
yeah, it was just, I just would honestly, anyone, any advice you give, I would give to anyone is just really be responsible for your own, your own game and your own sort of career, really. I mean, just, and then, and then there's absolutely not one way to do it, right? There's not one way to do it. They, you know, they, you see a lot of players out there now, and I'm sure Carl will, will agree that there's, there's lots of different ways to do it. There's lots of different ways to play. Um, but what they all have in common is they truly believe in themselves and, 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 and what they do. Um, Luke anyway. Milligan, Luke Milligan, in terms of yourself, I guess the same question, advice you would give to a younger 16, 17 year old self during, during this period of time or, or, or your, your tennis career itself. Do you believe that the wildcard culture held you back? It's, it's an inter- it's an interesting question, really. I think, I think, I think if I, if I go to what advice I would give myself, I'd give myself a little piece of paper with four or five names on it. And I'd just tell myself whenever, whenever anyone tells you something to do or gives you advice, look at that bit of paper. And if the name's on it, completely ignore everything they say, because uh, there were, there were a lot of people who I, I don't particularly believe had my best interests at heart who would, who were making pretty big decisions about what I did week in, week out. And I, and I would definitely keep that bit of paper in my pocket all the time. Um, that would be the first piece of advice I'd give myself. And no, I'm not going to give you any names. So, you know, what? No, I, I can see Come on, Millers, just one. Just one. Come on, Millers. Millers, just give us one. No, I'm not going to give any names, but that would be one thing. And the second thing, I really, I really agree with Lee there, actually, that, and, and something you said earlier, I would have, I would give myself the advice to set the bar a lot higher and, and, and aim higher with what I was doing. And I would also give myself the advice to, to, to really, see it as a long-term investment in myself I think when when I was younger certainly a thing that I, I really really remember when I reflect on my own my own tennis was this obsession with early developers like if you're not top 100 by the time you're, you're 20 then you know here's a coaching pamphlet and you know get yourself get yourself get yourself out and, and do your level three and it was almost like uh, this this rush to find the next person who was going to be the next big thing and it was just this big rush all the time and the biggest advice I would give myself was to, to actually not listen to any of that and see it as a, a, a long-term investment in myself and take more, you know, more responsibility. And, you know, I, I think I, I say that thing about the piece of paper tongue in cheek, but I think I ended up using other people as an excuse a lot. And so I would want to ignore those people just so that I didn't have an yeah. excuse that I could use and, and, and actually take more responsibility for myself and what I was doing, to be honest. Kedders, I have to bring you in here as well, because the first time I saw you or spent time with you, it was, I don't know if you remember it, but it was an under 18 ITF junior tournament in Portugal. And you were probably 14, 15 at the time. And one thing that really struck me about you, even at that age, you were different in mentality to the pack. You were on a global scale, you know, you weren't, you weren't thinking about being 240 in the world to get inside the wild card to, to then be able to justify the wild card. You weren't hoping that the other person lost first round so that then you were doing a little bit better and you got your wild card. You know, it seemed very clear to me that you had that mentality from a young age. How did you manage to do that? Was that something that just was happening with the coaches? Was that something that was happening with your family? Or is that just the way that it is? 
I think a little bit to do with family in terms of how you've been brought up and your mentality or so on. But I remember at a young age, I was told um, quite clearly you should always think long-term, develop your game long-term. Um, when you also get told, don't worry about results. Now it's all about long-term. That, that's, that's a hard thing to do when you're young. Um, it's so easy just for someone older who's done it or an adult say, you know, it's all about the long term. It's actually when you're in it to believe that. Um, and I think I did a, a decent job at that. I didn't have like amazing results as a junior. I was never the best or anything like that. But I certainly knew that it wasn't all a, all about those results. And I think just my work ethic, always trying to work hard, not waste sessions, um, you know that sort of mentality I, I wasn't one to sort of mess around and I was quite shy in that way so it never gave me opportunity to mess around to like be that sort of centre and attention I just my way was to always sort of get on with it quite quietly and 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 just do the best I could I think looking back on it that helped me at the time I didn't know I was gonna have you know maybe the results I've had or the career I've had and so on but I was always kind of told look long term it's it's never about now and um in hindsight I think that that helped me a lot especially through that that junior period. Carl who gave you the advice was it parents or was it coaches? In terms of how I was like not working uh, working hard so that, that was definitely my parents that I remember the first, very first session I had like in tennis at all my my dad said to me like he says, you throw that racket, you're never playing tennis again. That was like the, one of the first things. And it always stuck with me. So I never was like of the mindset of messing about, you know, wasting my parents' money. That that mentality, I think, comes a lot from, from my family. In terms of like the actual advice, playing long-term was actually John Black. He was the guy that said to me, I think he saw my game and, and the way I played was a mature game, not like a junior game where, that cliche of like moonballing and stuff. It was quite, um, I wanted to be aggressive. I wanted to make plays. And I think that was something that I had, like I developed, but I had, that was a natural thing for me. So it, he was the guy that always said, you know, think long-term and that, and that helped me mentally as well. Guys, I would love to keep you all night because I'm loving the stories and I'm sure there's there's loads more to come out. But before we move into one little tradition, we have a little quick fire round at the end of the podcast. So we've got a little, a, a small quick fire round just with one question that I want to ask, ask you all. But are there any more challenges that you feel that we haven't got to, you know, of being specifically on being a British tennis player during the grass court season? Because what my hope with, with this podcast is there's lots of coaches, there's players, there's parents that are going to be listening to it. And, and I want them to, to take that advice. You know, if it's a 15, 16 year old, if it's an 18 year old, if it's a coach of up and coming players, if it's a parent of up and coming players, for them to be able to see what some of the challenges are and preempt them so that they can then put things in place. Is there anything that we've missed, do you think? Just from my side, I, I always think the the earlier you can actually start experiencing it, the better. I mean, yeah. I think it, for any British player, this is 
the biggest going to be the biggest time of your year throughout your career and I think just having the experience of of actually playing on the grass and understanding how to play on the grass and and because there you do get a bit of a heads up if, if you you can take on board advice from other people that have gone through it because I think still it's different it is a lot more different now but still the foreign players do step on the grass and think what is this surface so I, I mean I, th I think yeah I mean I always think just try and experience it as young as possible and get into some of the events um, and you, you get so much exposure that I think really does help players and we've all talked about the fact that you know belief has maybe been something that we've lacked as British players and I've always felt that playing through the grass actually gives you the belief. I think also, I agree with what everyone's saying, but I think getting, uh, doing well at a younger age on, on the grass at Wimbledon, uh, certainly for me when I was about 18, 19, those expectations went up dramatically because I was the last British survivor. Um, I then got phone call, I was followed everywhere, um, even to Covent Garden of all places. I remember the phone going off at home and mum saying, and it was a former Liverpool, I might test actually Carl on this, it was a former Liverpool captain from the 70s who called me asking me to be part of his uh, agency. And, um, and suddenly I then went off uh, to Newport, like Chris, and then on to the US Open. You lose first round the U US Open and, uh, you know, suddenly you can't play anymore. That, that the expectations were huge. And I think it's having those people around you to say, hey, you're not at that level yet. You know, taking that pressure perhaps off me. I wasn't at that level. I had two, two good wins. I wasn't quite ready for it. Um, and it was certainly a time for me to probably be developing my game and not have that pressure on feeling like oh, now I've got to get to the third round of US Open otherwise I've failed so yeah really nice. I, as Lee was saying it's just like trust in yourself have good people around I also I remember playing Fed Cup and I hit a drop shot in the first on the first game and I remember the captain saying to me don't do that again and I thought why the bloody hell have you picked me because that's what I do and then you know and then suddenly I've changed my style and I've gone all sort of tight nervous um, but I think yeah very much just back yourself don't listen to that but it's having the guts to do that but if you're getting help uh, from an agency you know LTA you kind of want to do what the right thing and do you know what people sort of tell you but I think it's having the, the guts to go no this is my way this is why I'm going to do it. Wilkes? Yeah no um I think it's important to enjoy it as well. I think, you know, why do we get, why do we start playing tennis? It's easy to lose sight of, of that. We, we started because we enjoyed it. It was something we started at a young age. I think obviously Wimbledon is, you know, is you get so blinkered, you know, because of the pressures and it's, you know, if I look back now, just, I was just saying, you know, look around, just, just, just enjoy it, take it all in. And that's, you know, advice I would give to, you know, anyone new to the game, sort of, well, not new to the game, but sort of new into, into Wimbledon, into the big events, you know, it's easy said and done, but really, really look to try and enjoy it as much as you can. Reminds me of the year that I played mixed doubles with Julie Salmon. It was probably the most enjoyable time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that, Julie? I think we knocked the top seeds out, didn't we? Did we? Yeah. I can't remember that. No, it wasn't, the, uh, wasn't that enjoyable then. You must have been with someone else. <laughs> no. Uh, I don't know. 
I agree with Wilco on that one. One of my biggest regrets is actually not enjoying the grass court season a little bit more. I think, obviously, there is expectation from the media, but most of us would say that the most pressure we put on ourselves is, is, is actually just from within. And, uh, yeah, the reason why we, we start playing tennis in the first place is often because of our experience of just watching Wimbledon as a kid. Like, I remember first going to Wimbledon, I was seven and eight, and that really was the most inspiring experience of my life. And I'm sure sure many of us on this call will say the same. But have we then not got a duty to dilute the importance of the grass court season? I guess I, I keep bringing us back to this, but it's like, if it's all about wild cards, if it's all about that's, that's stopping us from the players pushing on, which I would imagine most people on this call if they weren't if they weren't British and it wasn't about the wild cards into Wimbledon, might have pushed their rankings on a little bit further. But then at the second, the, the, the next part about enjoying, it's built up. If you're the end of the year, how many of us stopped at Wimbledon? You know, it's like, okay, cool, get one more Wimbledon out of it, and, and then we stop. You know, so so we are we are cultivating this monumental thing that that will potentially bring the worst out in us in terms of how we do it whereas if it's just another part of our tennis journeys our tennis lives and okay no expectancy on getting wild cards I have to have the ranking to get in if I do then great but actually I'm just going to enjoy this as another part of my tennis year then then I think it's a bit of a different place to look I don't know what people think on that but I I, I don't know whether it's because I'm in Spain looking back now but it certainly seems to me like it kind of takes over. What do you think, Claire? Um, I, yeah, I was. I come from it from a different point of view, actually. So I, I, I obviously I was very fortunate. I really enjoyed my my Wimbledon times. I was um, so ninety four was quite big, but ninety six was the Euros as well. And because I love football, um, and not the correct team for you, Dan, but I do love my football. And um, I was really fortunate that UEFA just bunged me loads of tickets for the Euros. So I was uh, I, I loved it. I was having a great time. Um, but one of the things I wanted to to sort of bring up is a few things that have sort of been mentioned the first one was is that when I played Wimbledon of course I was super excited to play it and it was wonderful and we had the lead up to it and a couple of years you know I, I you know I did what Chris said and hung around played the grass courts and then and then and then did county week but a couple of the times it set me up financially to then go on the US swing leading up to US Open qualities um, because that was sort of I don't want to say it was my LTA funding, but being given the granted the wild card actually then funded those sort of nine weeks leading up to the to the US Open that we played on the hard courts out there, enabled me to get the fully changeable flights that you needed, um, and, and all the, and pay for the hotel, which you know being the journeyman that we've all agreed, apart from Kyle and Harriet, have said that we are. You know, it was if I do well this week, then I can plan this far in advance. And if I don't do well, then I can only plan this far in advance. So I looked at it like that. Um, maybe I'm different to everyone else and I don't want to put words into people's mouths. But, that you know, yes, we went from Wimbledon to Wimbledon. But for me, it was because I was trying to then have a little bit of planning moving forwards rather than just, am I going to go up to Sunderland in the 25k lose first round get 100 quid and not know how the hell I'm going to put petrol in my car to get back down to train next week nothing wrong with the northeast Claire yeah nothing no, wrong no, with no, the sorry no no it was it was, it was oh. lovely but yeah I broke down <laughs> twice coming back from Sunderland so that's why it pops in my head um 
but you know using the experiences of that and, and driving forwards with them I think that I think that that is what I would want to push forwards for anyone that's listening to this that wants to go in and, and is British and wants to you know do well at tennis it is the best experience that you can have it can be the worst experience that you have if it doesn't go well and, and people are mean to you but you you need to use it you know it's not it shouldn't be given that we're given you know that you get a wild card into it but you know if you do get the opportunity then you take it you grasp with it and you run with it and you do your best out of it and I think that that is what I would want to say to people and get them to to take away from the grass court season and you know I think all of us here actually I'm looking are still all involved in tennis which for me is a wonderful thing that we are we've lived this experience but tennis is still a massive part of our lives and or every all of our life still and I think that that's the one thing that I want people to understand is yes okay playing wise Wimbledon is is the one most wonderful experience but tennis is what we're all in this for and tennis is what we all still love and we still do it in whatever shape or form that we do that's what it's about and if you love tennis like we all clearly love tennis that's what we still do well said very well said. i'm voting for claire next election <laughs> cheers Wilkes. jinx yeah no i just wanted to follow on with it we we're talking about the talking about the prize money behind it and obviously now it's a hell of a lot more than say even when i was playing and obviously danny and wilkes and those guys playing but i remember danny danny you might be able to say talk a bit more about this actually um was was the or it used to be the Lang squad when I was on it, but then I think you may have, was it called that when you were doing it? But you had to give back all your prize money, didn't you, when you were on that squad? We gave back all singles prize money, yeah. We were able to mm. keep our doubles prize money. How did you feel about that? Or, or was that because you, you know, you were getting funded anyway? Or just how did you um, feel about yeah, that? Yeah, no, I was, I, was, I was quite happy to do that, I think. I think it, it, having the LTA backing being, fully funded as a 18 to 21 year old it gave me the opportunity to travel around and play and develop and, and try and push on with my ranking so I was quite happy to to give back my prize money it was just a, a kind of a normal natural thing to do and it was just accepted back then it's a good um, way yeah. to do it no I mean it's, it's like any any business any business yeah, it was good no it was up, good upfront I, I must admit we did have a few jokes though where when it came to doubles events we were we were fired up and we wanted to win because <laughs> that was the only prize money we could keep so so uh so yeah so i guess maybe if i don't know if, I, I, it's interesting here what you're saying dan about the the foreigners and how they need to make the top 100 because that's that's their only gauge of playing wimbledon and and justifying what they're doing i suppose but um but yeah, no, I've always I've always felt that I gave it a hundred percent, and I've always thought that Wimbledon was a positive. But just hearing your slant on it is making me think a little bit. And potentially, if I weren't British, would I have kind of just hung around the hundred and seventy to two hundred and twenty type ranking, or would I have kicked on a bit more through determination and and wanting to play the bigger events? I don't know. And having it you on a on a kind of a plate and wild cards every year it does make you a little bit complacent and and maybe you do lose that little spark that's going to push you on a little bit further so I don't know maybe you should have been around 25 years ago for us all Dan we would have all uh, we would have all been top 50 in the world and <laughs> retired onto a sun lounges now rather than grinding it out in the coaching world I don't want to send you all into a dark room after this of, of reflection you know mm -hmm. <laughs> Miller's yeah, I was just, it, it, it's interesting listening to what everybody's saying, because I think 
there, there are so many enormous advantages to being a Grand Slam nation, aren't there? Like, I mean, if you if you look at if you look at all of all of the advantages that there are, and e- and even as a player, I think all all of us clearly benefited a lot, both financially and in terms of experiences and, and exposure through Wimbledon, the grass court season, access to, you know, playing a level of competition that we weren't necessarily ready for at that moment in time. But that that exposure and, and those experiences, even, you know, a lot of us, it's it's it those those experiences are helping us with with what we're doing in our coaching as well as as well as you know when when we were players and I think I think it, it's a really interesting question you pose because for, for, from my point of view I think ha- having having a Grand Slam in our country I think it, it, it is and should be an enormous advantage for our players and our coaches and it certainly is for our you know for, 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 the, for the game in in this country and I think I think the players part of it is, and, and the wild cards part of it is one very small part of it, isn't it? But I think it is a, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of in a million years minimizing the, the importance of and, and, and the value of the grass court season in Wimbledon, because I think it is almost quite rightly. It's, it's, um, it's kind of the pinnacle of, 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 of British tennis. I think in, interesting with listening to someone like, Kyle talking about his experiences in terms of how he's you know managed and learned to accept certain things about Wimbledon and 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 almost kind of makes it a bit bit more of a normal event I think for, for younger kids coming into it I think the more as Lucy said the earlier they get exposed to that the more they can understand what to expect and and understand how to deal with it and understand as Carl said the things that you go well okay I've just got to accept that that's just going to be there I just got to accept that and let it go a they'll be able to enjoy it more and b they'll be able to take advantage of the advantages that having all of those great grass court events will give you as a player the last your last task and I'm going to go from left to right as I see it on my screen it is quick fire as much as I'd love to hear and the listeners would love to hear your long answers. You have to select the women's 2021 Wimbledon champion, the men's, and also one Brit to watch. And you can choose a male or a female player. And Lucy Arl, you're lucky that you're on the top left. So you get to go first. Okay, so uh, men's Djokovic. Women's God, it's open, isn't it? It's not quick fire, this is it. Brit to watch. I'm gonna go Jodie Burridge. Um first time playing. And women, I'm gonna go Sabalenka. Kyle. Yeah, Djokovic is the favourite. I'll go with Barty, especially on grass. I think that suits her very well. And a Brit to watch. Yeah, I don't, it's not so much to watch, but definitely like Evo, just think he's like, you know, he's he's playing as well, he ha- has done. He needs, like, I think he needs like a, a really good run at a slam, like getting to his proper last stages and just the situation playing on grass, I think just helps him. So I think, I th- and there's no reason why he can't do well. Like he can beat a lot of really good players, like especially the top ones now. So I think he could do well this year. I think it's exciting to see what Evo can do for sure. Luke Milligan. 
I'm going to go very quick fire. I'm going to go Djokovic. Um, I'm going to agree with Kyle and say Ash Barty. I think she's got a great game for the grass. Brit to watch. I'm going to go um, uh, Jack Draper, see if he can uh, back up his little run at Queen's and take advantage of the grass court season. Claire Taylor. Um, yeah, I'm really sorry. I'm really boring. Uh, as much as um, I would like it not to be Djokovic to win, I think that's going to be the case. I think he's going to do that. I was going Barty for the women. And then I'm either going, yeah, I'm either going Jack or I'm going Cam Norrie after what he did last week just to see if he can actually do it again this week because, you know, he's played an awful lot of matches, won a lot of matches um, this year. So see if he can he can make a good run, good fist of it. Chris Wilkinson. I'm going Nadal Nasaka. Just to be different. <laughs> Obviously not because they and uh, and and me and Brits <laughs> and to watch. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> we'll watch Kyle not playing, watch him on sidelines. Um, yeah, Djokovic and I would go Sabalenka. I think would be a good shout and Raducanu and Draper. Danny Sapsford. Uh, I am going to go with Djokovic again. It's hard to bet against him, I think. Um, I'm going to throw in a bit of a curveball and say Serena Williams on the grass. I think she's going to finally win her, what is it, 25th slam? 24th. And overtake all the greats or draw level with them, whatever it may be. Um, and Brits to watch, I'm going to go for Jack Draper. I think he, he reminds me a little bit of Andy Murray and being able to raise his game on the big stage so I think he could uh, he could surprise a few people this year and Julie Salmon I've gone for Barty it's here honestly um, Djokovic I don't want to win but uh, I'm probably going to say Djokovic or Titsipas uh, and the one to watch I think this could be a big year for ever and Katie O'Brien for the men I'm going to go a bit left field so I'm going to go Berrettini after his win at Queen's and then for the women I'd really like Ash Barty to win. And Brit to watch Emma Raducanu. It's her first senior Wimbledon. Well, I, I do a, on the podcast, we do a, a, a preview of every, every Grand Slam. So we have a, you know, Xavier Melise, Freddie Nielsen, Mark Hilton, Naomi Brody, Anne, Anne Kay comes on as well. And before the French, they were adamant absolutely adamant that Rafael Nadal was going to win the French Open. It was a clean sweep. Um, I went against them and they were also adamant that Ash Barty was going to win the French. And I went against them as well. And I just think tennis has a habit of surprising us. I think without any shadow of a doubt, Novak Djokovic is the favourite. But I'd like people to think about this. Novak Djokovic is going for number 20. You know, he's going for his calendar slam. And, and I think there's going to be a little extra pressure on, on Djokovic this Wimbledon. I think people are expecting that he's going to walk away with it. So I made my prediction last night when I spoke to those guys. People that listen to the podcast won't be happy if I change it. I have a sneaky feeling, and I know he's lost first round the last two years, but Alexander Zverev, you know, he's someone who has now... You know, fin finalist in US Open, semi-finalist, I believe, in Australia and in French Open. He's got the ability to beat Djokovic. He can serve out of a tree. I know that that tree falls down sometimes, but he can serve out of a tree. And he sits the ball unbelievably clean. So that's my pick on the men's side. And I wasn't expecting to hear the word Sabalenka. 
and because she was also my pick. And my justification on that is she was winning every single WTA 1000 event going into the slams previous. And then she, I don't think she's made it past the third round. And then last week she lost in the first round on the grass. So I believe now she's going to do the flip flip side and she's going to go and win her first slam. My Brits to watch, you mentioned Raducanu. I, I, I really do think she's got a really bright future, you know, and whether it's this year or coming years, I think she's going to make that breakthrough. But my Brit to watch, I can't believe no one's mentioned them. I believe it's going to be his last Wimbledon. I don't have the inside scoop on that, but I really do believe. And if he could get a big first round match to take somebody out on a center court. I don't believe he's got seven matches in his body, but if you could give us one more hoorah on the center court, and that is Sir Andy Murray. So he is my British player to watch this Wimbledon. You guys have been amazing. You've given me two hours. You've given the listeners two hours of what is going to be just such a wonderful listen for them. I really do believe that, you know, those that are listening, they can listen in two, three, four parts, but to hear your stories firsthand and to bring all of the amazing learnings from it, a massive, massive thanks from myself and all of the controller controllables listeners. And yeah, good luck to you all in, in whatever you're doing, Kyle, good luck getting yourself. We're all excited to see you back on the court keep up the good work, bringing through these youngsters, and yeah, hope that you can join me again sometime, but a big thank you to you all. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Good, good fun. Nice to see you all. Cheers, everyone. And a big thank you to all that gave their time to come on to the show. I can tell you it's not easy to get 11 people's schedules, busy people, and all 11 of us are still heavily involved in this amazing sport. You know, I talk all the time about tennis being a vehicle that takes us through life. And it really hit me in the last couple of days since that conversation that us 11, you know, some have, have had better careers than others. But ultimately, this amazing sport has brought so many opportunities, so many friendships, so many skills and, and, and such a love for the sport still. And I, and I hope that came through in the podcast because it certainly did when we had the conversation a few days ago. And I hope that's whetted your appetite for Wimbledon starting in a couple of days. It's, it's always an incredibly exciting time of year. 2020 didn't allow for it to happen given the global pandemic. So it's double the excitement going into 2021. Uh, a big, big thank you to you all. Enjoy every second that you get to watch of the green grass at Wimbledon. And if any of you are fortunate enough to be one of the 50% of crowds that can make it in, scream that little bit extra loud, eat an extra couple of strawberries and, and treat yourself to an extra couple of pims because we really should never take this beautiful, amazing tournament, this event that is unrivaled anywhere in the world for granted. I wish I was going to be there this year. Unfortunately, I'm not. But it's a big personal goal of mine to be back there in 2022 in some capacity. If you could spare one minute of your day to say thank you to us as a podcast by rating us and reviewing us, it really would go a long way. It would be greatly appreciated. We will be back next Tuesday with more amazing guests and we hope to continue to entertain you to educate you 
and to energize you wherever you are in the world. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.